0: Tonight I'd like to speak about two of the most far-reaching and pervasive aspects of our experience aspects that condition both the suffering in our lives and also condition the possibilities for happiness and these two aspects play out both in our meditation practice and in our lives. And these are the realms of thought and emotion. So in order to have a fuller understanding of how we can work with thought and emotion, I think it's helpful to understand and put them in the context of what are called the two truths. That is the level of relative conventional truth (coughs) or reality and the level of more ultimate truth a more ultimate reality. We can also understand these two levels. The relative level is the level of content and the level of karma, of cause and effect. (coughs) The more ultimate level we could think of in terms of the process or in terms of understanding emptiness When we look at thought and emotion in terms of these two levels, the relative level and the more ultimate level, we see that these two levels work to balance our approach in working with these two aspects of our minds. And it's important to consider both the relative and ultimate levels because particularly in spiritual practice, it's very easy to become attached to one level or another. I mean, we're very familiar with being attached to the relative level because that's the level of our personal stories and our dramas. You know, we get caught up in the content of our minds. So it's easy to see the attachment to that level, but <clears throat> it's also possible, and this can happen in a spiritual journey, where people get a glimpse of emptiness, the more ultimate level, and then we become attached to that and ignore the relative. And that's the whole phenomena of spiritual bypass, where we're not attending to the relative, to the content, to the things that need attending to, because we up-level everything, it's all empty. And so a maturity in practice is really when We understand how these two levels uh, really form a union, you know, and we integrate them into our lives. So the union of these two levels (coughs) was expressed in a very pithy way (coughs) by the Zen master, Sung San San He died some years ago, Korean Zen master. He said, there's no right and no wrong, it's the emptiness level but right is right and wrong is wrong, (coughs) and that's the relative level, and we have to hold both. (coughs) There's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. (coughs) So the importance of working with thought and emotion is highlighted in all of the different Buddhist traditions. One Tibetan text describes the untrained mind as tumbling like a waterfall. Does it sound familiar? (coughs) In terms of one's own experience, you know, where the mind is just tumbling with thoughts and feelings and emotions. And there's one verse in the Dhammapada, you know, which is a collection of Buddhist teachings uh, from the Pali Canon, where the Buddha said, the active mind is difficult to tame, flighty, and wandering wherever it will. Taming it is essential, leading to the joy of well-being. And so we all know, you know, this tendency of the mind to be flighty, you know, wandering where it will. We know this from our own experience. How many times do we hop on trains of thought association. You know, we hop on a particular thought and then there's this train of thought. We don't know that we've hopped on, we have no idea where the train is going, and then somewhere down the line, you know, it's like we wake up, hop off the train, often in a very different mental environment from where we started. And so we can see the tendency you know, the deeply habituated tendency uh, to do this. The question then is how do we work with thoughts? This very pervasive aspect of our minds. Learning to understand and to creatively shape the thought process. This is again from the Dhammapada. Remember, the Buddha is speaking in a... He lived, you know, around 500 BC, uh, so his, his images are not necessarily the ones we're familiar with today, but you can imagine, you know, from his time. He said, just as an arrow maker shapes an arrow, so the wise develop the mind, so excitable, uncertain, and difficult to control. So, with quickly passing thoughts, the ones just that arise and pass through simply, we can practice refining our awareness of them by beginning to notice where in that thought process we become aware that we're thinking. So, just to pay attention, where in that process do we wake up? is it after the thought is already over which happens very often you know we're lost in the thought and then it's over and then, oh, I was thinking sometimes we wake up in the middle of the thought sometimes when the mind is clear we can actually be aware just as the thought arises and sometimes even we can be aware of the intention to think you know so this is uh, sort of how the meditation can develop at different times What's important is simply to notice whenever it is that you become aware. And this begins to hone our attention with thought or to thought as an object. The important point here, as we become mindful of thinking, is not to add a judgment or the attitude of a judgment or aversion to the thinking process, you know, or resistance. Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, in his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he had a phrase, (laughs) when this book came out know, in the late 60s or 70s, uh, classic, you know, in those days, so one of the one of the lines in it has stayed with me all these years he said don't be bothered by your thoughts let them come and let them go what a (laughs) inviting instruction (laughs) don't be bothered by your thoughts let them come and let them go but when we have longer trains of thoughts when we're really lost or caught up you know, for an extended period of time, in the whole story, then uh, we need different strategies or with thoughts that come again and again, you know, repeatedly. In this situation, we need to understand the broader meaning of the Pali word sati, you know, which is (coughs) usually translated as mindfulness. But it has a wide range of meaning and application. So the root meaning of the Pali word sati is to remember. Then the question is, remember what? And two aspects are highlighted in terms of what we should be remembering in the development of sati. One is remembering or calling to mind what is skillful and what is unskillful. What is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And the other aspect or thing we need to remember is remembering the present moment's experience. And here's the meaning of sati or mindfulness coming face to face with what's arising. So this is just the opposite of absent-mindedness. Now, there's mindfulness, wise, wise mindfulness, right mindfulness, and absent-mindedness, when we're not coming face-to-face with the present moment. Mindfulness also is remembering the present moment, or we could say settling back into the present moment counteracts the very strong tendency both in our meditation practice and in our lives to be leaning forward into the next experience you know we're leaning forward in our lives in anticipation of the next event or the next experience and in meditation often and this is a common tendency, we're leaning into the next moment. We're with the in-breath in order to feel the out-breath. We're lifting the foot in order to move it forward. And so there's that slight forward lean. It's expressed very well uh, in a line by James Joyce describing one of his characters. He wrote, Mr. Duffy, lived a short distance from his body, <coughs> you know, and I think Mr. Duffy describes most of us, you know, we're, we're a little bit ahead of ourselves. And one way you can tune into this, and this is a very skillful um, practice that you can do throughout the day, is pay attention <coughs> to the feeling of rushing. You're all familiar with that feeling, that internal. What is rushing? What does that feeling come from? We're rushing when the mind is ahead of itself a bit. You know, we're here in order to get there. And we're not not actually settled back in the moment. So as you go through the day, whenever you feel that you're rushing, and it doesn't have anything to do with speed, you can rush moving quickly, you can rush moving slowly. You cannot rush moving quickly or moving slowly. I saw this really clearly once when I was, I was paying attention to this in my practice and really noticing it many times during the day, when there's just that slight leaning forward. And I noticed I was doing walking meditation, and then the lunch bell rang, and I was walking just as slowly. <laughs> and I could feel that inner pull to the dining room. So this is really helpful, this mindfulness then, remembering the present moment. By noticing the times of rushing through the day, you'll notice those times when you are out of the moment when you're a bit ahead of yourself. And you can stop, cut the momentum, and simply come back. In remembering the present moment with regard to thought, the challenge is that these objects of mind are very slippery. You know, they seem to slide into our experience, and they don't have a big initial impact. You know, there's not the same impingement on our awareness that, for example, sensations have. When different sensations arise in the body, we're generally aware of them quite quickly, or even sounds, because there's an impact. Thoughts, they're so sneaky. You know, they just kind of slide in And we're really often unaware that they're there. Before we realize it, we're carried away, you know, uh, in this mental proliferation. It's like we're lost in the dream of our own mental activity. And it really is like a dream state because we're not aware at that time that the thoughts are present. It's as if we're dreaming ourselves into existence. And that's why mindfulness of thought is such a powerful vehicle for waking up. Mindfulness of thought in both its aspects, that is recalling what is skillful and unskillful, It's one aspect of mindfulness. And also the aspect of remembering the present moment, being connected to the present moment. Both of these aspects of mindfulness with regard to thought serve as a great protection for the mind. Because it keeps us from being lost in all those thought trains that condition our suffering suffering for ourselves, suffering for others. You now, without mindfulness of thought, we are simply acting out all the habit patterns of our conditioning. And the importance of this was highlighted uh, in a teaching by Ajahn Sumeto, you know, the American monk who was kind of the senior disciple of Ajahn Chah and who brought the Thai forest tradition to the West. He said, uh, Our life in the Dharma is not about following the heart, it's about training the heart. And I think this is a really important uh, reminder because often, kind of in New Age circles, you know, well, just follow your heart. Being experienced meditators, you already know that not everything in our heart is wholesome. You know, there is a lot that is, but unless you happen to be a saint, and if you are, please let me know. (laughs) So it's not just a question of following whatever arises, it's actually training it, you know, and part of this training is discerning what's skillful, what's unskillful. You now, Carol spoke last night of the Buddha's discourse on two kinds of thoughts, where he was describing as a bodhisattva how one of his practices was to see what thoughts were skillful, what thoughts were unskillful, you know, what was rooted in greed and hatred and delusion, what was re- rooted in generosity and love and wisdom. So we begin to actually discern the different kinds of thoughts. And again, in that same sutta that Carol was Speaking about when the Buddha goes on to say why this is so important and she mentioned this last night but I felt I wanted to repeat it again tonight because it is such an essential teaching that we often overlook you know when the Buddha said whatever we frequently think about or ponder will become the inclination of our minds you know how often do we relate to thought, oh, it's just a passing phenomenon, it doesn't really have much impact. But whatever we frequently think about and ponder, that becomes the habit pattern, that becomes the inclination. It's that neural pathway becomes more and more strongly established. And so it's easier for that kind of thought, that same thought, to arise again. We're establishing a habit pattern. If we realize this, then we can see the importance of discerning, okay, what habit patterns are we establishing and deepening and strengthening in our lives? You know, are we strengthening habit patterns of desire, of ill will? Are we strengthening habit patterns of kindness, of generosity? And we do this through mindfulness of our thoughts and discerning what is skillful and what is unskillful there's a reflection that the buddha suggested uh, in this same discourse and i want i want to read the reflection because again it's not something we often do Uh, And in teaching of the meditation here, we don't often uh, emphasize, you know, reflecting as as a method, but there are times when it can be really helpful. And so this is the Buddha describing his own, his own practice on his path to Buddhahood. He said, when a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I understood thus. This thought of sensual desire has arisen in me and this leads to my own affliction, to others affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulty, and leads away from the bhana. Now this is this is the part that uh, really struck me. He said, when I considered, this leads to my own affliction. This thought leads to my own suffering, it subsided in me. It's like when we reflect with with unskillful kinds of thoughts rooted in unwholesome motivations, if we see it, if we recognize it, and then reflect, this leads to my own affliction. That becomes a powerful reminder, and it subsided in him. When I considered this leads to the affliction or the suffering of others, it subsided. When I considered it leads to the affliction of both, it subsided. So do you see the power of the mind to actually reflect a bit when there's a strong repetition or pattern of unwholesome, of thoughts that are rooted in unwholesome motivations. So we can really begin to work with our thought patterns you know, and cultivating those which lead to happiness and learning to let go of those which simply cause suffering. Sometimes this reflection may not be enough. You know, the pattern may be really strong. So I had an experience, this, this was many years ago, uh, in my younger years (laughs) when I was on retreat and a strong lustful thought kept coming, thought and image, and it was hugely seductive, you know, it was just so enticing. And I would, I recognized it, you know, this is a lustful thought, pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. Uh, It didn't didn't do anything. (laughs) And I knew it was unwholesome. (laughs) You know, that it was just rooted in greed. So then, (laughs) kind of a, need a stronger, stronger strategy. Uh, I call it the sword of wisdom. (laughs) You know, and so sometimes when something has been coming up a lot, you know, we've seen it a lot, we understand it, there's no danger of that we're simply suppressing it. You know, at that point, after 10,000 times, it wasn't a question of suppression. So I said, Joseph, enough. <laughs> you know, it was just, it's, it's like, take the sword of wisdom, no, okay, enough of this. And it really helped, it was like meeting it with a commensurate strength. Now the key to this is not doing with aversion. You know, it's realizing yeah, we can have a strength of mind. We, so much of vipassana practice, rightfully, is about the yes to things. You know, and we talk about opening and yes and accepting and you know, so a lot of what we do is that move. But there's also a skillful use of no. I call it the wisdom of no, you know, where we see that something's unskillful and we try different things. Imagine raising a child and never saying no. (laughs) Probably wouldn't be a very happy coexistence. You know, there are times when we need to know, but it can be done in a loving way. So again, this is the play. You know, and I hope you get the sense that this whole retreat, as I mentioned, it's a laboratory for investigation. You know, so we're discerning what thoughts are skillful, what are unskillful, which is an aspect of mindfulness. We play with different ways you know, of cultivating what's wholesome, of letting go what's unwholesome. You just see, you know, you play and see, okay, what, what's the method here that's going to be effective? We also, with regard to thoughts, it's not only this discernment, of the skillful ones, the unskillful ones, what patterns we are strengthening, we also have to look at our attitude about thinking. Because, again, I think Carol mentioned, it's very easy to come into the practice with the idea that we want to stop thinking, or thinking is bad. So, Saito Tejaniya speaks a lot about this. I just want to read a few of his suggestions. He said, When the mind is thinking or wandering, just be aware of it. Thinking is a natural activity of the mind. You are doing well if you are aware that the mind is thinking. When you feel disturbed by the thinking mind, remind yourself that you are not practicing to prevent thinking, but rather to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. It does not matter whether thinking stops or not. It is more important that you understand whether your thoughts are skillful or unskillful appropriate or inappropriate, necessary or unnecessary. So when the mind is caught up in a lot of thought, in addition to the discernment of wholesome and unwholesome, really check the attitude in the mind about the fact that you're thinking. Is there aversion, is there judgment, is there resistance? Or is there simple awareness of it? So we've been speaking mostly about thought and dealing with thought on the relative level. Right? The level of content. But in our practice, we also want to be understanding thought on the more ultimate level of emptiness. And this is when we're investigating not the content of it, but the very nature of thought itself. And so a question that has been very profound for me in my practice, especially when there are many thoughts coming, I'll often ask myself the question, what is a thought? Not what is the thought saying, but what is a thought as a phenomenon? It's very interesting. And yet this is a question probably very few people in the world have ever asked themselves. You know, mostly we're just lost in our thoughts and acting them out. When we're looking directly at a thought, when it's there and ask, well, what is this? As a phenomenon, it's completely fascinating because we see that in and of itself, a thought is little more than nothing. It's just completely insubstantial, ephemeral phenomena. And what's so amazing about this is to see that when we're unaware. Of thinking, when we're not mindful, thoughts have tremendous power in our lives. Thoughts are like little dictators in the mind. You know, go here, go there, do this, do that, get married, get divorced. Get <laughs> 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 you know, in our whole life it's just, it's like we're just doing the bidding of all these thoughts. So tremendous power when they, when we're not mindful of them. And yet as soon as we are mindful of it as a thought and see its nature, we see it has no power at all. It's a completely empty phenomena. So this is, when we really see that clearly, it's revelatory. It really changes you know, how we're living and what we're doing and what we choose to act on. Kensi Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan masters of the last century, and his teachings are, are quite amazing and clear. And so, he, this, this is what he wrote about thoughts When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors. Yet, a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Light, moisture, air. In the right conditions, a rainbow appears. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly as they have been doing through countless past lives. And whether you believe in past lives or not, we know just in this life know, the merciless torment (laughs) of the thinking process. So this insight into the empty nature of thought, this is not some esoteric, you know, advanced practice or teaching that you need to go into a cave for 30 years to understand. We can understand this right now if we take thought as an object, if we see that a thought can be an object of mindfulness in the same way that a sensation or a sound or the breath or movement, whatever, it's just another object for our attention, and take an interest in it. So one game you can play, I call it the thought game. You know, sometimes if, if you're interested in really investigating this a little bit more you might take 10 minutes in a sitting or 15 minutes where you decide that your only object of awareness is going to be thought. So it's like sitting back in a movie theater and you're just watching the screen of the mind and you're simply waiting for thoughts to come. So first, because you're waiting for them, you'll be happy when they do come. So instead of fighting, oh, good, a thought, that's what you're waiting for. So first, there's it changes the attitude. We actually are happy to see them. And then we begin to notice, because we're just watching the screen of the mind, we see, oh yeah, there are thoughts on many different levels. Some are really loud and clear and obvious, and some are really soft and subtle, like whispers in the mind, and some sneak up from behind. You know, oh, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So we need a 360-degree <laughs> screen, you yeah. know. So just you know, do this if if it appeals to you. Uh, Just do this, like for ten minutes, fifteen minutes, and you'll see that that there's an immediacy to our ability to really learn about the nature of thought, both on the relative level, you know, the content and discerning what's wholesome and unwholesome, and even more liberating to see it on the more ultimate level of their emptiness, their insubstantiality. Uh Okay, so mindfulness of thought can also lead pretty directly into a greater awareness uh, and mindfulness of emotions. So as we all know, emotions are a complex phenomena. Emotions are a constellation of physical sensation, of thought, of different qualities of the heart. You know, so it's all, all together, they constitute what we call an emotion. And there's a wide range in our ability to know what we're feeling. You know, For some people, for whatever reason of conditioning, it may be quite difficult to connect with what we're feeling. You know we might be going in on in our lives and not really understanding or recognizing that there is some underlying emotion which is motivating a lot of our actions. You know maybe it's the underlying emotion of desire or fear or unworthiness or shame or it could be anything. You know, the emotion is there, and we may not have tuned into it, and yet it's conditioning how we act and are in the world. For other people, we may actually know what we're feeling. We may recognize what emotion is there, but still be caught up and lost and carried away and identified with them. Know, carried away in this flood tide of emotion. We know what the emotion is, but we haven't yet seen a skillful way of being with them. So there are different ways we can train ourselves to be mindful of different emotions, with emotions in general, and more specifically with the afflictive emotions those feelings that cause suffering in our lives, both for ourselves and others. So one very interesting aspect of our minds to observe, and I've taken tremendous interest in this, is to observe how a particular thought or image can trigger immediately an emotional response you know we may think of someone who hurt us in some way and immediately it can trigger anger or ill will or resentment or we think of someone we love and just in the moment of seeing the image or having the thought you know it triggers the emotion of an open-hearted open-hearted feeling or we might think of someone we're strongly attracted to. You know, just the image or thought of that person arises. And maybe immediately lust arises in the mind. And it can be so quick and so immediate, these, these trigger points. And all of this can be happening just as you're here, sitting and walking and moving about, with no actual contact with that person at all. That whole emotional reactivity can be triggered simply by an unnoticed thought or an unnoticed feeling. And even when they are noticed. If we can watch this process, you know, of seeing the thought and how it can trigger an emotion, it really helps us both to be more mindful of the emotion, because we're we're seeing it right from the beginning. And also we begin to see more and more deeply the conditioned nature of that emotion. So I've played with this a lot. I just find it fascinating. So one time, uh, I was noticing how particular thoughts Of a person and a situation uh, would trigger either anxiety or ill will. One, with the situation, it was something I had to do, and I was, you know, I had the thought about it and I felt a little anxious about it. Another was thinking of a person that there had been a little bit of conflict, and the person came in immediately, there was a thought of irritation and annoyance. Uh, And in noticing this, I started playing, I started intentionally having those thoughts, you know, so I would intentionally think of that person, or think of that situation, and I was just like pressing a little button. <laughs> Thought of the person, ill will. Thought of the situation, anxiety. And I kept doing this, <laughs> because was, it was, it was just amazing to me, the process of seeing it like... How does that happen? You know, how a thought in the mind can trigger quite a big response. So at a certain point, just as I was playing with this phenomena, uh, the impersonality of it all became so obvious it became humorous. You know, it's just watching the mind do its thing. You know? And it really helped to see the conditioned nature Of these emotions. I don't know whether you find it as amusing as I do, but another way of tuning into emotions that we might not have noticed, uh, one of the one of the signals uh, that I found useful is just to see when We're going through the day, and there's some feeling of unease or unhappiness, or, you know, something just doesn't feel quite right. That itself, that feeling of unease, can be a signal for us to look, to take a little more care and investigate Okay, is there an underlying emotion here that I'm not paying attention to, that I'm not open to, that I'm not aware of? It might be unacknowledged worry, or unacknowledged anxiety, or fear, or aversion. There's something going on which is giving us that feeling of unease. So you can use the uneasiness as a wake-up call to, okay, what is the emotion that's underneath? If we don't tune into it, then these emotions, these underlying emotions can become the unconscious filter through which we're looking at all experience. Another reminder to look at what's going on in terms of unacknowledged emotions I find you know when you're going through the day and you're doing something and you just have some sense that it's not quite right Uh, so I'll just give you an example this happened years ago I was on retreat here at IMS you know in the dining room sometimes at lunch there'll be a dish and in front there'll be a little sign moderation please so I was going through the line, and they had this sign in front of something I really liked. So I'm going through the line, and ah, I really like this. You know, I had been on a long retreat, and I deserve it. <laughs> 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 so I took, uh, I took more than I really should have. But I you know, just, even as I was doing it, you know, this, this isn't quite right? <laughs> So, just that feeling, you know, oh, this is a little bit off. So, it prompted me to, okay, well, what's going on? What's, you know? So, I just started looking, you know, what was underneath that action? And I saw, I mean, it's obvious, I saw the greed and the desire. And then, you know, I was back at my place at the table eating and then, I felt the shame, and I felt the embarrassment, and I kept looking over to see if there was enough left for people at the end of the line. And the whole, that whole meal was consumed by these emotions. Uh, and so we can use these times, you know, when uh, something is telling, us, oh, this doesn't feel quite right, to actually look, just to investigate, okay, what happens both as a motivation and as a consequence of those actions. So, it all becomes, uh, it all becomes food for our understanding. You know, it's, we want to understand all these different aspects of ourselves and all the different emotions that may be driving our actions. Sometimes we don't recognize what's going on because we mistake one emotion for another. You know, it's we're misperceiving what's actually there. So one common misperception, which could be a whole talk in itself, is confusing attachment and love. You know, because these are two quite different states. But that's for another talk. <laughs> but another example of misperceiving which was very striking to me I was on retreat and I was feeling really sad for whatever reason and I was just noticing and sad, sad, sad but it felt locked in in some way it didn't feel like it was just moving through so then I began to wonder well what's really going on here and when I looked more carefully I saw that it wasn't sadness it was unhappiness and there Kind of related, but they are different feelings. They're not the same thing. As soon as I recognized clearly what it was, that made possible the acceptance of it and the acceptance to letting go. As long as I was misperceiving it, I I wasn't aligned with what was actually there. And so it was not possible to get to that place of acceptance. So I'm not suggesting at all that with every feeling that comes up you know, you go on a investigation, quest. well, okay, what's this, and what's this, and what's this, and am I see, perceiving it correctly, and not that at all. But if you feel caught in some way, you know, if you're going along and you really feel stuck in some emotional state, and you try you know, different ways of relating to it and being with it, the ways I've suggested, then at that time you might look, okay, well, what's really happening here? You know, just to see if you're perceiving it correctly. Okay, clear recognition then makes possible the next step in working with emotion and that is mindful acceptance of it because we can recognize we can recognize clearly and accurately what emotion is there but another whole uh, understanding is what's our relationship to that emotion you know and mindful acceptance of an emotion it doesn't mean justifying it and it doesn't mean wallowing in it, and it doesn't mean judging them. Rather, it's the simple acknowledgement that a particular state is present. And the Buddha spoke very directly to this in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness. The first instruction he gave in working with the hindrances and different mind states and emotions, he said, if sensual desire or aversion, or worry, or any other state is present, one knows desire, or aversion, or restlessness is present. It's that simple. First instruction, simply to know that it's present. That's the mindful acceptance of what's arising. Now, one indication of non acceptance. You know, so you might ask, how do I know whether I'm accepting or not? One indication of non-acceptance, and this has proved very useful to me over the years of practice, is recognizing the sense of struggle. You know, when the course of, in the course of your day, just notice when it feels like you're struggling. Struggle means only one thing. It means something is going on in the body or in the mind that we're not accepting because if we were accepting it we wouldn't be struggling. So it's a very powerful feedback. Instead of getting lost in the struggle and you know feeling sorry for ourselves or discouraged or whatever really just the opposite. Take struggle This is this is like a mindfulness bell struggle is telling us something is happening that I'm not open to. It may be feelings in the body, it may be difficult emotions, it may be the fact that the mind is thinking a lot. If we're not accepting of it we're going to be struggling. So use that as a feedback to look to really see. You know, we all uh, have established a comfort zone of things, of experience that we're comfortable with. And in our meditation practice, we come to the boundaries of what we're comfortable with. You know, it may be intense physical sensation or it may be strong emotions. We get to that edge of our comfort zone And it's very interesting to observe, what do we do at that point? Do we just pull back, you know, to get comfortable again? Or at that point, are we willing to, okay, let me open to this. Let me open to this. Let me open to this. And so then our comfort zone gets bigger and bigger. And my imagination, and this is just an imagination, of the Buddha mind is a mind without boundaries, where there's no edge, where the mind is totally free in the awareness of whatever's arising. Now in this process of opening, we also need to be careful when we're at that edge, because sometimes things are coming up that can be too intense or overwhelming for our ability to be balanced with it. I mean, sometimes people are reliving old traumas. You know, very intense experiences. And we may not have the capacity at that time to open. So we need to see if we're losing balance, if we're feeling overwhelmed by what's arising, then the wise and skillful thing to do is to pull back a little bit, right? To come to a place of more balance, of more ease. And then when we've regained some balance, again approach the edge. So this is the dance, you know, of uh, bringing mindfulness, you know, to these edges, to these boundaries and then proceeding appropriately. So the last step in working with emotions, and this is the most challenging and the most liberating, both with those that are afflictive and also those that are skillful, is learning how to be with all emotions without identifying with them, without taking them to be self. And it's this understanding that transforms all emotions into wisdom. So what does identification with emotion mean? We're very familiar with that. You know, it's when we're lost or caught up or identified. You know, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm excited, I'm enthusiastic, I'm depressed. Well, in all of those ways of being with emotion, we have created the sense of self in them. And what we learn through practice, through being mindful of emotion, is that the I and mine are extra. We can open to all of these states and be completely connected with them and feel them and experience them without the identification with them, without personalizing them. So for myself, the main afflictive emotion in my practice over the years uh, was the emotion of fear. And it would come up for a long time in very intense ways. It was just like I, my energy system was opening to primal fear. I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't rational. There were, there were times when I was afraid to go from sitting to standing. You know, irrational. But the emotion was just very powerful. So I was working with this for a long time. It took me years of working with it to understand that in all that time I was recognizing that it was there, but I was taking the recognition to be mindfulness. But I was really, I was with it in order for it to go away. So all along there was aversion to the fear. And I didn't realize for quite a while that that aversion, first seeing it and then seeing that the aversion was feeding it. And it was only when I came to a place of acceptance that the non-identification with it could happen. And it was expressed, in the, it was a very vivid thought in my mind, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. It's okay. So, I actually offered to you as a magic mantra for the next six weeks or three months, it's okay. Whatever's arising, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Because it reminds us just to soften, to settle back, that it may be unpleasant, but it's okay to feel it. Okay, one last little, there's a lot, this could be a two-hour talk, but What do you think? (laughs) The back room would be very unpleasant if I did that. (laughs) But just one less little comment about emotions. How we relate to them also depends on our level of understanding. And so what may make one person very upset and difficult, one situation may leave another person quite at ease. So my favorite story of this is the story of the Zen master Ryokan, who was this, you know, poet, hermit, monk, very poor, lived in the mountains of Japan, just would wander through the villages, he had almost nothing, you know, and one day he came back to his hut, and the few possessions he had was stolen, almost everything was gone, but he was a great haiku poet, and so he wrote a haiku. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. <laughs> so just imagine going home after this retreat. Everything is stolen. Oh, the moon at the window. <laughs> uh, probably not. <laughs> so how our emotional response to things very much depends on the level of wisdom we bring. And so, I think you'll see in the course of the retreat, as we develop a deepening wisdom about how to work with thoughts, how to work with emotions, our relationship to them becomes much freer. You know, and then, kind of, we live our lives seeing how different thoughts and emotions are simply conditioned arisings in this open, clear sky of the heart and mind. So this is our practice and this is the potential for greater freedom uh, for all of us. So let's just sit quietly for a few moments.